you have your copy of Scripture, find uh, the gospel according to John, please. John 8, uh, beginning at the first verse. Then they all went home. I'll tell you about that in a moment, where, where they went home from. But Jesus uh, went to the Mount of Olives. So in other words, he, he didn't go back to Nazareth, his home. He went to the Mount of Olives, uh, probably the home of Mary and Martha, which was in, on, in Bethany, where was, which was sort of his home away from home. At dawn, he appeared again, so he came down the Mount of Olives and back into Jerusalem. He appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them, which was a very Jewish thing. Rabbis sat to teach. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin, or as some of you remember that, go and sin no more. I said that I'd tell you what it meant in first, actually verse 53 says they all went home. Verse 1 begins, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. They went home from the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of tabernacles. Thousands upon thousands had descended upon Jerusalem for this one of the largest of the Jewish festivals. They came to celebrate and even in some way to reenact the exodus out of Egypt. When the people of Israel escaped, when they exodized out of uh, Egypt as slaves, they, the first part of their journey they spent in temporary dwelling places in tabernacles or booths. We might call them tents. And so, uh, now hundreds of years later, the people of Israel are reenacting that, and they come to Jerusalem. And when they, they get there, they, they erect, as a commemoration of the Exodus, they erected these tents, these tabernacles, these makeshift booths out of palm branches or thatch or whatever they could, they could find, so that in the city of Jerusalem, in the valley surrounding Jerusalem, on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem, uh, it must have looked like one large uh, tent city with these temporary booths uh, everywhere. What we read about this morning, the event I read about this morning, occurred on the morning after the last day of the festival. So the festival had ended, many went home, Jesus went 
to probably to Bethany to spend the night, got up early the next morning uh, to come back. But this big Mardi Gras-like festival had come uh, to an end. We're going to talk about uh, three things. We're going to talk about straying and stoning and starting over. We'll start with the straying. Sometime in the wee hours of the morning, a man and a woman had hooked up. They were not married to each other. At least one was married to someone else because the charge against the woman was adultery, not another common word in the Bible, fornication. So we know that because the word adultery is used, at least one of them was married to someone else. They were seemingly locked in an embrace when suddenly the room was filled with men, men with long robes and prayer shawls, that, that clothing indicating or identifying them as Pharisees, ultra-conservative religious uh, leaders. And they said, by the way, don't mind that light. You just go to the eye doctor. That's not lights. That's your eye. You have an eye problem. Don't worry about those lights. We have a lot of questions about this story. Question one, how did they catch this couple in the Pharisees' own words in the act? Some have suggested it was a setup, all pre-planned in order to trap the woman. Some have suggested these men were peeping toms, voyeurs, looking in places they ought not be looking. Some have suggested they just happened to look in. Remember, these people all over Jerusalem were these makeshift booths made out of thatch or palm branches. They, they weren't exactly solid walls, so maybe they just were passing by and looked in and saw them. Of course, then that begs the question, how did they know this wasn't a husband and wife? That's question number one, how did they catch this couple? Second question, where did, why didn't they take the guy? Why did they just take the woman? Some have suggested, again, if it was part of a setup, then, then he would, maybe he was in on it. And when they burst in, it was time for him to go. Some have suggested it was a case of double standards, and that makes sense. That wouldn't be the first or the last time that people exercise the double standard. Isn't it sometimes still true? Boy or girl, men and women do something they ought not, and we blame the woman primarily. Don't we say sometimes, ah, boys will be boys. She should have said no. Don't we exercise sometimes a double standard? Maybe that's what was going on. Or maybe the, the man just ran out the back door. Maybe one moment he was whispering sweet nothings in her ear and promising his love forever. And then when those guys burst in, maybe he made a new door out the back of the, of the tent. Why didn't they take the guy? Third question. How did the woman in question get herself into this situation? Well, maybe, maybe she was a woman of loose morals. Maybe she did this often. Maybe even, maybe she got paid for it. Maybe uh, she had a hole, an emptiness in her heart. Maybe she'd been abused when she was young. Maybe she'd been abandoned or betrayed and, and had an emptiness she was trying to fill. Maybe she was looking for love in all the wrong places. Or maybe, maybe her husband told her to go on by herself to Jerusalem. Maybe he said, now, honey, you just go on and have a good time. I, I've got so much business here that I need to do. 
I'm going to be busy, so you go on, honey, and you have yourself a good time. And maybe at the, the last day of the festival, maybe at a party, maybe this woman met a man, a stranger, at the punch bowl, and maybe, um, maybe she said, my husband's back at home, uh, he, he's real busy, you know, and maybe, maybe he said, well, boy, you're so pretty, if you were my wife, I'd never let you go anywhere without me, and maybe, maybe she hadn't heard something like that in a long time from her husband, and maybe... Maybe it started all innocently, and then maybe one thing led to another. We don't know exactly how they ended up there, but somehow they ended up in each other's arms in the wee hours of the morning in an adulterous relationship. That's the straying. Let's talk about the stoning. The sky was barely awake. Jesus had come down from the Mount of Olives before dawn, and now the early birds had gathered to hear him teach. He was in the middle of a teaching when suddenly there was a commotion, and these men in those robes and prayer shawls come dragging a woman, and they, and they push her out there, and suddenly she's standing in the middle of all these strangers. Now, before we criticize the Pharisees too badly, we are going to get around to criticizing them. Don't worry about that. But let's remember that, that they weren't bad people. Pharisees weren't bad people. They were deeply religious, staunchly patriotic, great students of the, the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. They were scholars associated with the synagogues, highly respected if, if you'd had a Pharisee as your neighbor, you would have given him the key and said, listen, if ever, anybody ever needs to get in, then you, you hold this key. They weren't bad people. They were, however, self-righteous, power-hungry, and jealous of Jesus. They weren't bad people, but they were self-righteous, power-hungry, and jealous of Jesus. They, they pushed her out there and they said, we caught her red-handed. And the law of Moses says she should be stoned. What do you say? Stone her or stone her not? And it was the perfect trap. Because if he said, don't stone her, then it would look like he was dismissing the law of Moses. For in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it says, if somebody's caught in adultery, you stone them. So if he said, don't stone them, he would have seemed like too liberal when it comes to the scriptures. If, but then on the other hand, if he said, stone her, then, then it would have, uh, he would have lost those who had come to him looking for grace and mercy. He would have seemed harsh and unloving. And, and so it was the perfect trap. And that question hung out there like an unexploded grenade, stone her or stone her not. And, and, and the Pharisees must have felt really confident. I can imagine a couple of them high-fiving each other, maybe elbowing each other and smiling a little bit. We, we've got him this time, they must have thought. But the people who love Jesus, those sympathetic to him, they must have been worrying. How's he going to get out of this? They must have been nervous. I bet you they were as nervous as Auburn fans were Thursday in that game against New Mexico State when you were wondering, how are we going to pull this out? They must have wondered, how's... Uh, I got an amen. That's the first amen I've gotten in a few weeks. 
the, the people sympathetic to Jesus must have wondered, how's he going to pull this one out? And so he knelt down and he began to doodle or write or something in the sand. And it's an interesting thing to debate in a, or just run around the room in a Sunday school class. What was Jesus writing? Some have suggested he was diverting attention from her to the sand. So that instead of staring at this woman, he was just diverting attention. So they looked down at the dirt. Maybe he was buying some time trying to figure out, hmm, now how do I, how do I get out of this? A common suggestion is that he was writing their sins in the sand. And there's even some evidence for that because the, the, the typical word for write, to write, in, in Greek is graphene, from which we get like the word graphics, like graphic arts. But this word is not graphene. It has a prefix, kata graphene. Kata as a prefix means against. So it says he was writing against in the sand. So there's good evidence that maybe he was writing pride, and greed, and lust, maybe in the sand. I learned a fourth possibility this week. Jeremiah 17, 13 reads, those who turn away from the Lord shall be written in the earth. Isn't that interesting? Those who turn away from the Lord shall be written in the earth. So maybe, and these Pharisees, they knew their Hebrew scriptures. So maybe when he started writing in the earth, they were thinking, uh-oh. He, if they, maybe they couldn't see what he was writing, and maybe they thought he might be writing our names. And they got, then they got real nervous. And then Jesus spoke one of his most quoted lines. Let the one who is without sin throw the first stone. Now, let me pull over here for a minute and offer you a warning. That phrase, let the one who is without sin throw the first stone, has been hijacked by people who would say it is wrong to name things that are wrong. It has been twisted by people to say anything goes, and, and those of you who condemn immorality are cold-hearted and mean-spirited and modern-day Pharisees. That most one of the most quoted phrases of Jesus, let him who's without sin throw the first stone, has been hijacked and twisted to make anyone who stands for morality look mean and cold and pharisaical. That is a terrible misuse of that phrase. It is not wrong to say wrong is wrong. It is wrong to enjoy it and to forget we are sinners too. It's not wrong to say wrong is wrong. It is wrong to get kind of, you know, uppity about it and forget that we are sinners too, and we're going to come back to that. Now, back to the story. Jesus is riding in the sand. He straightens up. He stands up, and he says, okay, um, you've got me, so let the one who's without sin throw the first stone, and he knelt back down and began to ride, and, and the older ones were the first ones to recognize they had lost this match, and so the older ones were the first ones to leave, and then slowly the entire circle of charlatans slowly slithered away. <clears throat> I heard a story on the radio 
two Wednesday nights ago. I was on the way home from our Wednesday night activities. Up here, right in front of the hospital, a story came on. A woman was being interviewed named Rachel Hertz, who wrote the book, Why You Eat What You Eat. And she was telling the story. When I, when I got uh, jumped in, she was telling the story about uh, a, a woman who said, when I shop at Whole Foods, and I know there's at least one employee of Whole Foods here, so this is not a, don't get nervous, this is, Whole Foods is a great place, just want to give my endorsement for Whole Foods. I hadn't thought, you know, maybe I could do endorsements on Sunday mornings. We are on TV, you know, I could, well, there's an idea. I'm sorry, I got sidetracked. So, this lady said, um, when I go to Whole Foods, and I walk out, and there's a, a Salvation Army volunteer there, and, and with a kettle, I'm annoyed, and I don't give me anything. But when I shop at Walmart, this, this lady, this um, Rachel Hertz, was telling this story about another lady who said, when I go to Whole Foods, I walk out, Salvation Army guy, I'm annoyed. But when I go to Walmart, and I leave, and there's a Salvation Army person volunteer there with a kettle I'm moved with compassion and I always drop something in well of course the interviewer was fascinated by what's the difference between Whole Foods and Walmart Rachel Hertz said research has found follow me now when people shop where organic products are popular and they buy lots of organic products they get a sense of moral superiority so if you go somewhere and it says organic or it says fair trade, that's a popular thing. Then, according to the research, people are less kind, less compassionate, less generous. And get this, this is Ms. Hertz again. I'm not making this up, by the way. Ms. Hertz says, other research on the same topic found that when people saw labels like USDA organic on products, they were more likely to be harsher in their evaluations of other people and moral transgressions and so forth. So it makes us more judgmental of others as well. Isn't that interesting? So if you shop for organic or fair trade, or you go to, you get your coffee at the coffee shop where there's a big sign that says, the, you know, the people who grow the coffee get good wages. You start feeling all hoity-toity and high and mighty, all smug and self-righteous and sanctimonious, all pompous and pious and puffed up and judgmental. Isn't that interesting? I wonder if it's true about Whole Foods, if it might be true about church. <gasps> Is it possible that when you're driving home today, you drive by somebody in the neighborhood, and they're out there trimming the bushes in shorts and T-shirts? Is it possible that you might say, huh? They didn't go to church today. Is it possible that being in church will make us this week a little more judgmental? Is it possible that being in church makes us feel all hoity-toity, high and mighty, all smug and self-righteous and sanctimonious, all 
pompous and pious and puffed up? Is it possible that being in church makes us more judgmental? Mm-hmm. Phariseeism is an easy trap for good people to fall into, people who are students of the Scriptures, deeply religious, staunchly patriotic. Phariseeism is an easy trap for good people to fall into. The Pharisees' problem was not that they said adultery was wrong. The Pharisees' problem was that they enjoyed, read the story again, they enjoyed pulling that lady out there and parading her in front of the people, and they forgot they were sinners too. The Pharisees' problem is not that they said adultery is wrong. The problem is they enjoyed being judgmental, and they forgot they were sinners too. In fact, you might remember, some of you were here, most of you were, when two and a half years ago, we had our long five-month discussion about sexuality to try to come to an agreement, a a, a common statement. One Sunday morning, at at the conclusion of a sermon during that five months, after I had kind of summarized this very story, I said, we will never change the world with stones in our hands and sins in our hearts. We will never change the world with stones in our hands and sins in our hearts. It is not wrong to say wrong is wrong. It is wrong to enjoy it, to get all kind of puffed up about it. And it is wrong to forget that we are sinners too. Well, that's the stoning and the straying. Let's talk about starting over. Jesus asked the woman, all these charlatans had slithered away, and Jesus asked her, where did your accusers go? Is there no one left to condemn you? No, they're all gone. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus said. Go and sin no more. Let's talk about that. First, go and sin no more. It's important we remember Jesus didn't say, "Ah, don't worry about those old prudes. He didn't say that. He didn't say what you did is not bad. He didn't say, you know, everybody does it. He said, quit that. Stop that. You were created for more than that. You deserve more than to be somebody's one-night stand, somebody's hidden mistress. You were created for greater than that. Now stop that. Go and, and stop this. Go and sin no more. But he also said, uh, I don't condemn you. Jesus condemned adultery. In fact, he expanded adultery to include lust and condemned it. But he said, I don't condemn you. What does condemn mean? Have you ever seen a house that had a condemned sign on it? Maybe tape, big sign, maybe it was white, maybe it was red, but it said condemned You know, enter here under penalty of law and all that. You know, that that condemn sign says, filthy, dangerous. 
This house does no longer deserve to hear the sound of the laughter of children. This house no longer deserves the warmth of family reunions. Uh, This house's better days are behind it. This house is henceforth useless. And I've been doing this so long, I've had lots of conversations with people who felt like they had a sign, a condemned sign, hanging around their necks that read, filthy, dangerous, no longer deserving of good things, no trespassing, better days behind me. If you tuned out, I want you to tune back for a minute. Because I have something that's a bit, for me, mystical. I'm not as mystical as many. I'm not as mystical as I wish I were. But I had a mystical thing happen this week. Of course, I, I've known for three or four weeks I was going to talk about this. So that's always, you know, running around in the back of my mind. But this week we were at student camp down in Florida, and it was a great camp. We were in worship one night, and I had, I had something mystical happen. I had this deep sense that I was supposed to say something to somebody here this morning. I, I didn't get a word as to who that is. But I had this emotional moving, mystical sense that I was supposed to say these words to somebody here this morning, and the words are these. You are not condemned. You know, most people who feel like they've got a condemned sign around their neck is because of the shame of a sexual sin. Not because that's worse than greed and pride and otherwise, but because our sexu- the roots of our sexuality run so deeply into our hearts that the wounds don't heal as quickly and the scars are bigger and those sins haunt us more. And I don't know who I'm supposed to say that to. I didn't get this word from the Lord, but I, I just have a hunch that somebody I wouldn't even ever dream that I was supposed to say it to. But you are not condemned. The Bible calls the devil the accuser. He has said to you, there's a sign around your neck that says condemned, filthy, dangerous, no longer worthy of good things. You are not condemned. That night that you keep remembering or those nights you keep remembering God has long since moved on from that. That tape you keep playing in the back of your head, God doesn't watch that tape. You are not condemned. You are deserving of good things. You are not filthy. You are not dangerous. Your best days are not behind you. You are not condemned. I wonder what happened after she left. We don't know. She would have to explain to her husband if, in fact, she was married. She would have to endure the stares and the giggles. 
But if she took Jesus seriously, she became a completely new person. And if she was, as Paul said, in Christ, then the old had passed away and, and all things renewed. And Jesus didn't take away the consequences of her sin, but, 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 but she had a new identity. To other people, she'd always be. She'd always be that woman that got caught in the tent with the man that wasn't her husband. That's who she'd be to a lot of people. But to her father, she would always be his princess, the one who's whose picture she carried in his wallet, the one he was absolutely giddy about. I think it was back during the interim I told you this story about Donald Defner, who was a pastor near the University of California. Young lady came to him, young student, said, Dr. Defner, I'm about to get married and I'm going to have a church wedding, but you know, I, I haven't always made good decisions sexually and frankly, a lot of people in college know that, and I have sort of a reputation. So I guess she said that means I can't wear a white dress when I get married. He said, oh, yes, you can. That white dress, he said, will not represent a pure past, but it will represent the truth that when you, when you gave your life to Jesus, God cleaned you up and gave you a new beginning. Now, I imagine that when she walked down the aisle in that white dress, there were probably a couple of guys in the back kind of elbowing each other and giggling. But I think her father in heaven beamed to see his daughter walk down there with that white dress on. I don't know who I'm talking to, but please believe me, you are not condemned. Condemned. 